Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. So in today's episode, I have a special guest. I'll be talking with Carol Levine, who for many years has directed the Families and Healthcare Project at the United Hospital Fund of New York. And that's a nonprofit dedicated to improving healthcare for New Yorkers but much of their work has benefits and implications for family caregivers and others nationwide. Carol is a nationally recognized expert on family caregiving and has done really important work in bringing attention to the role that people routinely play in facilitating healthcare for their spouses, parents, children, or others that they are close to. Carol is also very knowledgeable about long-term care, and in 2014, she published Planning for Long-Term Care for Dummies, which was a collaboration with AARP. So I'm really thrilled that she was able to join us today to talk about the work that she and her collaborators are doing to make things more manageable for family caregivers. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leslie. It's a delight to be with you virtually (laughs) or podcastly, as we say. That's right, by audio. By audio. So Carol, I would love for us to start with you telling us a little bit more about how you became interested and involved in family caregiving because uh, your family actually experienced a really life-changing event related to caregiving, and I think it would be great for the audience to hear about it from you. Yes. um, Actually, my interest in families and family dynamics goes back a long way, but um, the event that really changed my life, changed my career, uh, and many other things happened in the year 2000 when my Uh, late husband and I were traveling in a car on a very icy road in upstate New York and had a an accident and I was fine but he suffered a very serious traumatic brain injury a TBI as I learned it is called and um He was in a coma for four months and in rehab for many, many months. And finally, I took him home. And there he stayed with me uh, for 17 years until he passed away, actually rather suddenly. So in the first several years of this um, episode, um, I really tried to understand what was going on and felt really left out of all of the medical discussions, the decisions about what was going to happen. And I really felt kind of abandoned by the healthcare system, which had Mm. been heroic in saving his life, but then sort of said, okay, you know, now it's up to you. So I then turned away from my work in AIDS, which I had been involved in for many years, and said, I'm going to try to find out what's going on. I can't be the only one who's experiencing this kind of confusion and uh, feeling abandoned. And, uh, and I started working with United Hospital Fund 
where I had been a grantee for my AIDS work, and I, I've been here ever since, and I've learned a lot. Um, and I found out that, no, I was not alone, but everyone has a different story and a different set of circumstances. Right. Well, that is such a dramatic story. And as you know, there are really millions of people who are involved in helping a family member or someone else with health. But I think it's not so common for people to be pushed into it so dramatically with their spouse. And, and at the time, how old were, um, did you have children and how old were the people in your family? My children were, I have, we have three children. They were at the time, um, in college or just out of college. Um, so they were on their way to independence. My youngest child, um, my son, was in his final year in, in the School of Social Work at New York University. And I remember very distinctly that um, he had one more semester to go. And he came in to me and said, you know, I, I told my advisor what's going on. And he said, you know, Charlie, um, if you want to take the semester off and be with your mom and dad, that would be fine. We'll work it out. And I, I looked at him in absolute horror. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. Your dad would not want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Oh. Finish your finish your college. It's been a struggle. Finish it. And he did. Uh, we talked about this actually the the other night, and then he went on to get his master's degree. So, there that was actually it. It wasn't so much a decision as an just an instinct that um, this was not something that that I was going to let affect my children more than it would in the normal course of things. Not everybody felt feels that way and I can't imagine you know that there could be another way to do it but for me it was just just totally out of the question finish school that's what we want you to do um, but it did affect my eldest daughter was then living in England and um, she decided to come back and pick up her career here with her um, than very new husband. And that was fine, That because I could see that being a good choice for them. So, you know, we all had to kind of readjust to this, and it, it but no one was ever sure how long this was going to last. Um, and the fact that it lasted 17 years, I think, was a tribute to his basic, in his basic resilience, my determination, and... I would add the very excellent home care aides that I was able to get. They were all men, um, and they really took excellent care of him while I was working, and I had to continue working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so really something that affects the whole family, and, and it sounds like you tried to, um, you know, in a way, uh, reduce the impact on your children, who understandably wanted to provide support. And it sounds like you were, you know, trying to find that balance. Well, it, it was not a question of not wanting the support. I did, but I didn't want their life course to be altered because I honestly, there was nothing that could, that they could do. Um, they could be there to visit, to talk to me, to be around but not in a way that said, you know, change the course of their lives. I just didn't see that was going to be helpful. And it, it would certainly not have been good for them. There are other situations where people have done it differently. And it, 
you know, but for me, that was the right way. And I, I have never regretted it. And I think my children have always been very uh, grateful that they could both be good, good daughters and son and still maintain uh, their life the way that they had planned to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you um, uh, more in a little bit about your experience working with the hired caregivers. But but before I get into that, people often don't think of themselves as family caregivers. And um, I've been interested in the work that families do in helping people with their health for several years. And that was something I realized a, a few years ago, I, in part, I think, because of some of your work and reading um, some of the articles that, that you've written. So how do you, in doing this work, define what a family caregiver is? Because there's certainly a a big spectrum of involvements that people have. You were very, very involved because your husband had a a pretty substantial um, injury, but not everybody has quite the same degree of hands-on involvement. So how do you define what a family caregiver is and and who who is a family caregiver? Well, that's that's a good question, Leslie. And I have to say that it took me maybe four or five years to be able to come to grips with this. And when I started reading the literature, remember this is now 20 years ago, the only references I could find were these people called informal caregivers. And I soon learned that that just meant you weren't getting paid, but informal was a way of a a policy speak term to kind of distinguish you from the people who really mattered, that is people who were getting paid. Um, And I really resented that label of informal because what I was doing was really so difficult. Um, So I, I didn't want to be a caregiver if I was going to be called a caregiver, if I was going to be one of those informal ones. So then I looked at other terms, and this is an ongoing conversation. I've come to accept the term family caregiver, and family being defined very, very broadly to include people who are related by blood or marriage or or long-term commitment or friends or neighbors. And I try to convince people that being a caregiver does not mean you give up your primary relationship to this person, whether in my case it was my husband, but in someone else's case it's a a parent or um, a sister or brother, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent or a friend. Um, So that doesn't go away, but caregiving is a job. And one of the books I wrote or edited a long time ago was called Family Caregivers on the Job, uh, because it really is. And I try to distinguish between caregiving being the uh, job you do, but it isn't the person you are. So you can be both. You can be the daughter and you can be the caregiver at, at the same time. But caregiving basically is providing or managing um, the care and well-being of a person who Um, needs assistance, whether it's because of aging or because of illness or chronic condition or trauma, whatever the situation might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's a really great point you make that that some people who take on this role are not actually uh, blood relations or, or spouses, because I have over the years come across a certain number of of older people who are actually getting sometimes a lot of help from neighbors you know, because they've been living somewhere often for years and their neighbors just slowly start doing 
I think it starts usually with a little bit and then more and more and more. And after years, you have you have somebody who's getting quite a lot of care from people who they're not related to and really have no no legal obligation. And it's it's kind of a wonderful thing, but also almost concerning to me that we end up depending on you know we whoever's there. The, we depend on the kindness of strangers, <laughs> as a, or some people have to. Some yeah, people have to. And um, it's wonderful that strangers step up. Right, sometimes. and strangers. You know, they're not strangers if they're if they're neighbors or friends, um, and that's always a wonderful addition to, um, and sometimes, as you say, the only uh, help that people have or are willing to accept uh, when people are live far distances away. Um, but it's interesting to me because, as I said, my earlier work before this was in the area of HIV/AIDS, and there I saw communities providing care, the gay community in New York and, and in uh, obviously other cities, San Francisco, uh, where it was friends and people of the same community who who rallied around the sick people. Um, and so it was never, to me, it was never a question of just being blood relatives. Um, it was always a question of who is there, who cares for you, who wants, to, who's willing to take on this role. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's, it's always, there's un, still an unfortunate kind of um, assumption that a certain family member or a certain person, a certain gender is more cut out to be a caregiver than somebody else. That's not true. It's, it really is much more dependent on the person's own sense of what they can do, their willingness to help, their their relationships that matters, not not the kind of legal or formal relationship. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I find that often, um, at least for older adults, I, I feel like uh, family or others start off by stepping in for, um, you know, relatively small things, you know, helping bring people to appointments or getting prescriptions or or a little bit of help with medications and, and eventually, you know, might take on more and more and become, you know, practically proxies for people. But, but I think in some other cases, when there's been a real crisis or emergency, they might jump in very quickly to a very um, more substantial role. And, and a few years ago, you collaborated with ARP's Public Policy Institute to survey family caregivers on what kind of health care tasks they were involved in. And I thought the report that came out of that was was really, really interesting. Can you tell us a bit about the findings of that report? Because I just thought they were so interesting and important. Thank you for asking about that. Because when I started this job, I I really wanted to make a difference. And that is one of the reports that has made a big difference. It's called Home Alone, uh, Family Caregivers Providing Chronic Care. And it was a national survey uh, that um, used a, a basic screening tool to say, you know, if you do if you do a certain number of things for somebody, then you're a caregiver, and and then we go on. What we found was my collaborator Susan Reinhardt is a nurse, so she understood what when she was in her role as a nurse, um, she understood what um, nurses could do and what that would never be expected of a family member to do. So we wanted to find out what the prevalence of family caregivers doing things that are really also in policy talks, skilled nursing care, things like very complicated wound care, managing medications, not just pills, but injections, infusions, 
uh, pick lines, um, inserted catheters, as well as the the more common things like uh, helping people get up, get dressed, um, personal care, making meals, and those sorts of things. What we found was really to us a confirming, but to many other people startling, that nearly half of the caregivers surveyed were performing one or more of those what we called skilled nursing tasks or medical nursing tasks. So these were things that, frankly, when I started were done only in the hospital um, or with a home care nurse coming in every day or every other day, um, and now are just being totally the norm. You you know, you need a pick line, great, go home with it. You need um, constant infusion, great, you can do that. We'll send you home with the, with the machinery. Um, so most of the people found were, were said that they had very little preparation for doing these tasks. They were very scared that they would make a mistake, that they would actually hurt the person. Um, and we thought that was really... Uh, shocking um, to the extent of it. And these people were not only doing the, that sort of task, they were doing care coordination and all of the medication management. And as you know, as a geriatrician, uh, older people take an awful lot of medications. So mm-hmm. um, it was a kind of wake-up call to the medical community. Who One <laughs> one person who reviewed an article, a physician reviewed, it, reviewed an article that we, that I, I think was, we had submitted, said, well, we don't ask people to do these things. What is this all about? Like, yeah, where have you been? Of course you do. Um, so I think um, since then, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, interest in trying to make this task easier. But I can't say that there's been any discussion about what I consider the fundamental question, are there some things we just should not ask family caregivers to do? Is it too technical, too emotionally laden? Um, why, why are caregivers just assumed that they can do everything when they're really their family in the broad sense? So it's, it's, a, it's a really um, very complicated question, but there's no doubt that um, people are doing all of the things that used to be done only in hospitals. Yeah, and just to clarify for the audience, you mentioned a PICC line. Yes, we wanted And that, yeah, PICC, peripherally inserted central catheter, which are lines that often are, um, it's like a big fat IV that they, I think people usually go home with them in the elbow and that can be used to, to have antibiotics for six weeks after a hospitalization and then I'm not sure if they are used for chemotherapy or in cancer situations too. They might be. They might be, but they have the line has to be flushed. The changes have to be made to the um, to the fluid or whatever is inserted, um, and it has to be kept obviously scrupulously clean. This is stuff that's going inside this person's body. So uh, uh, we did some focus groups with um, people who had been doing these sorts of tasks. And um, one man said he, he had, you know, knew how to do this. And then his friend came home from the hospital another time and was a different set of machinery. And... Uh, oh. so he said, the lady on the phone said, oh, you know how to do this. It's the same thing you did before. And he said, 
no, it isn't. He said, I shouldn't have to listen to just a lady on the phone. <laughs> he wanted somebody to come and show him how to do it. Um, so, you know, it is, even for people who are fairly well experienced, it's scary. And it should be. Right. And even things that I think sound almost, you know, simpler, like um, giving people their medications or especially as needed medications, you know, for pain. Mm -hmm. That's actually really kind of a nursing level task or pharmacy level task when you're in a professional setting. Absolutely. But we sort of um, family members are routinely doing that in the home. And one of the things that gave me a certain appreciation for all the things that family caregivers were doing, which were actually quite skilled, was to see how when people, older adults, moved from home to assisted living, that suddenly there were all these these things that their family members had been doing, which the assisted living facility staff would not do. Exactly. <laughs> because once you're in an actual professional setting, you know, you, they're, they're not, you know, they cannot give an older person a suppository for constipation. Right. 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 And we, you know, expect patients and families to do this for themselves all the time. Yes, it, yes. It's really, I think it is rather um, a shock to people to learn that the assisted living facility, they think it's, they know it's not a nursing home because they don't want a nursing home, but then they think it has all the things that a nursing home has, but it doesn't. So it's uh, mm-hmm. it's very low on the assisted part and, you know, presumably higher on the the living the you know being social and companions and all of that uh but it it is a it is a big transition um no matter what you say well it's an issue also because uh research has shown that people in assisted living actually have quite high levels of needs Mm -hmm. for care both um you know to a certain extent these medical nursing tasks that you identified in your survey, and then also for hands-on help. And I think some studies have found that that many of them uh, don't have their needs met, actually. So right. they want to be in assisted living, but um, but uh, they need more help than often can be provided at certainly at a reasonable, you know, or at a certain cost level. You know, one of the things we found, Leslie, in the and I'm sure you experienced this in with your your patients and their families. Um, that a lot of the people we were talked to in our discussion groups reported one of their big problems was the family member's resistance to taking medications. I don't want that. I don't need it. Why do I have to take it? It doesn't taste good. It's not working. You know, all of the reasons that people come up with. And it's very, very hard to know when, um, especially when they're taking, you know, a ton of medications, which ones is it safe to say, okay, skip it today, and which ones, well, you really have to take this or something bad will happen? That's one of the problems that I, I hear a lot from family caregivers. Uh, obviously, I don't know the answers because I don't know, I'm not a physician um, or even a nurse, but um, it's certainly one of the more troubling things that the family caregivers report to us. Yeah, well, I think a lot of older adults just end up with... Um, uh, a lot of self-health care to manage, mm-hmm. which I think is a challenge for them. And then I think it's, you know, the challenge is kind of compounded when the family member starts trying to, to help or feels responsible or is, or if it's implied that the family member is responsible, because I think we do do that, end up yes. doing that either deliberately or not. As clinicians, if an older person who has, you know, some dementia comes to the, their visit with their daughter, 
you know, I think often the, the doctors, you know, kind of talk to both of them and assume that that daughter will make sure the mother takes right. the medication. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> but, but that it was already a lot for the, the older person themselves to manage. And now that that family member has to cope with, as you said, the refusals, um, you know, the hesitation, trying to figure out how much to push and that often in the context of other symptoms or chronic conditions that they are also supposed to be monitoring and making sure is on track. Right. And this kind of, this sets up a, a really, to me, a very troubling dynamic where you're always at odds with the person you're trying to help. And so as a caregiver, you feel angry. And as the person who is getting the care, you think, why, this isn't helping me. You know, so there's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I think that doctors uh, and nurses, whoever counsels um, uh, family members and caregiver and caregivers and patients has to kind of make some, make a plan that is um, doable from everybody's perspective, not set up a, a little war that, you know, every time it's pill time, it becomes a, um, a fight. That doesn't help anybody in the long run. It just makes everybody angry. So, but I don't, you know, mostly it's just, well, you're the, you're the person, responsible person, the family member. You should make sure she takes that medication. Oh, that's not so easy. Right. No, it's certainly not. Well, have you come across examples of programs that um, or approaches that are doing a better job of providing families with the education and support to help an older person manage what I think of as their sort of self-health care? You know, there's right. a part of the health care that has to be um, managed by the patient care circle that's going to happen outside the clinic office. And actually, as one of our, our colleagues has, has commented, you know, 99% of healthcare happens, you know, in the absence right. of any health professional um, being done by, by people and their, and their families. So have you, have you found a way that, that clinicians can effectively provide that education support? I don't know of, of, of say, an organized um, program, I would say. And the, it's interesting in that, most of the um, support services, for fa at least for the family caregiver, don't deal with any of these problems. They deal with other kinds of issues of depression and managing, balancing work and family and all of those things, all real problems. But they don't get into the um, medication and uh, health care pieces of it. I have found in talking to people or listening to people that when there's a pharmacist involved, often that can simplify the medication regimen in a way that makes it a lot easier to maintain and that gives people confidence that they're getting the uh, medications that are absolutely essential, but they're not, they're not overwhelmed by it. And there's, pharmacists can be really, really helpful. Many home care agencies use pharmacists. And I think also in the discharge planning in a hospital, those programs that use a pharmacist also have a better outcome in the sense that they're not being, there's, there's some coordination of, you know, simplifying the medications and offering, if there's a problem with a pill, Let's figure out another kind of way to do it. Maybe the pill is just too big to swallow. Let's find another way. So there, sometimes they're just 
solutions like that that don't that don't require years of therapy but um it's not as common as it should be i think right well so you were you were mentioning that in the the focus groups you've had people express that as a common concern or frustration um, that it's hard to get their family member to take the medication and they're not sure whether it's okay to skip one or how hard to push. What are some other concerns that have come up over and over again that you're especially interested in or that people seem especially concerned about? Well, I think one of the things that um, people are very concerned about at, at this point and far more than they were when I first started talking to family caregivers in a kind of professional researcher way. Um, they're very concerned about money and the the expense of hiring people, the expense of medications, the expense of everything, um, the problems of of trying to maintain a job, leaving a job, what, what that means. Money has just turned up to be a huge issue for people who are obviously actually more more for people who are above the poverty line and are middle class than than for really really poor people who've always struggled with with financial things um I think that there's a lot of concern about hiring people about home care what it provides what it doesn't provide uh people need the help but they're the the person again this sets up a a problem of the the person will not accept any strangers in the house and so um you know the aides may come but they're fired immediately uh that kind of of situation is is very troubling because there needs people need some assistance they need some supervision but they don't want to lose their very important sense of of independence so those is the other really really troubling thing is um conflicts within the family siblings not agreeing on what sh- who should do what who should pay for what that kind of thing it seems often that the experience of caring for an older adult tears people apart, tears families apart, instead of mm. bringing them together. I find that really upsetting because um, it's hard enough. But if you have all of this background uh, struggling going on, it it makes it almost impossible to resume a life after the parent, the parent has passed, or put it in a nursing home, or whatever. So those are the kinds of things I hear. Um, they're not; none of them have any easy solution. But I do think that there are should be better ways of of not placing so much on one person that inevitably there's a kind of um, um, not a breakdown so much as a kind of wearing away at the edges. <laughs> of of what you're doing so that your your life really doesn't um belong to you anymore and that's not fair to anyone right right well you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your husband that you hired help yes and had a series of of aids how did how did that work out for for you and and if you were to if somebody now were to say ask you for advice on how can I sort of make that process work better for me, do you have any good suggestions or resources well, that you can recommend? 
I was in a rather unusual situation in which um, my husband, who was, by the time we took him home, he was conscious and, you know, aware and all of that. He never regained his former brilliance and, and personality, but he knew, you know, what was going on. He said, I don't want women to take care of me. I don't want, I want a man because he was big and he just, that was his, so I thought, oh, where am I going to get men? Because most of the aides are women. But as it happened, I lucked into one group of, well, f- first we had fr- a few months from an agency and a very terrific man um, was actually assigned to the to the case. And and, and so it, I realized there, there were men out there doing this job and doing it really well. Um, and then when that ended and I had to find people to pay on my own, I happened to find a group of um, foreign-born doctors who were studying for their American doctor licenses. And they were they what they did to earn some money to be able to survive while they were studying was uh, being home care aides. And they were terrific, um, at least the ones who stayed. There were one or two who didn't last more than a day, but the ones who stayed were terrific. The last one was with me for maybe seven or eight years. And they had, and I had, you know, it was a kind of, um, they understood him. They were able to talk to him in a different way. Uh, They were interested in sports. They were very kind and they also were competent. And, um, and very sensitive to his needs and to his moods. And I'd come in after being at work, and I'd say, okay, what happened today? And I'd hear, well, you know, they were very intuitive about what was going on. Um, so I really, I valued them. They they made my life possible. And and he needed them and knew that and and liked them they were they became friends in a way that was very very charming um they would never <laughs> the, the the problems i had were of the trivial you know variety could could you learn to put a not to put um, a bottle back in the refrigerator when there's only like two ounces left, that kind of thing. So I'd look in the refrigerator and I think, oh, well, I don't need to buy juice. Oh, there's, there's a little bit of juice left. Maybe being from a foreign country, they were very, or maybe being in someone else's home, they were very, um, very miserly about using up the last little bit. But um, I don't know that anyone, that you could repeat that experience, but there are certainly people who are are both skilled and kind and that's what you need you want somebody who can do the job well but are also uh easy to be with and kind um my i have one granddaughter who has very severe cerebral palsy and i was talking to my daughter and the other day she said um her other daughter wants he's graduating from high school and wants this person to come to her graduation even though she's not the person that has been, you know, being taken care of, but she's been so close to her and she's been with her for 18 years. I mean, that's unheard of. I said, you just, there is a certain, there's a certain marriage that happens when it works. It just, um, you have to 
work at it. And that's the other thing. People are not often willing to work at it. I did. It's a two-way street. They have to work at being what you need, but you also have to work at being responsive to their needs. Right. Well, you know, in listening to you, I'm struck by how it it actually reminds me of, uh, you know, being the mother of of, uh, young children. I mean, they're not so young anymore. They're now, you know, eight and five. But um, that's young. (laughs) Yes. But having gone through that phase not too long ago when they were quite small and uh, we never ended up hiring a nanny. Our children went to daycare, but many of my friends did have nannies. And it, it just reminds me a bit of the, uh, the experience I hear from a lot of people in terms of the childcare that, that uh, you know, first of all, a, a lot of people doing it are foreign born, mm-hmm. that there is this, uh, you want this marriage of, of competence and also kindness and ability to, to respond to um, the moods and needs of, you know, in this case, the care recipient is a child. Um, and that it's a relationship and kind of grows and that often people are there for years. And so it sounds like this was your experience, you know, yeah. of people who end up being there for quite a long time and have that combination of competence and kindness and ability to, to learn and, and stick around long enough for you to learn to work with them. Right. So, so today, you know, we have these new platforms that, uh, you know, promise to match people with, with, uh, you know, a suitable caregiver for someone who needs care. Have you heard any feedback from family caregivers on I how well not. Um, that I, is working? I have seen these platforms and these, um, um, you know, they're like, like match.com for, for caregivers. Um, I think it all depends on how well they're screened how well uh, the um, not only you know screen for not not the obvious things like criminal backgrounds and that sort of thing, but screen for personality, um, the kinds of person that the hiring person wants, uh, so that there's an attempt to match, and then there's some training on how to how on both sides to manage this what is not a really intuitively easy relationship we we have um, a next step in care guide on our mm-hmm. website on working with um, with home care aides because it's really important to set out the rules it's really important to and rules being not just you know not, not like what you don't do but or must do but how do we manage things like food, which is a very big area of contention? Um, what about religious observances, yours and ours and theirs? Um, how do you, so that there's no surprises and the people understand and are respectful of each other's um, uh, beliefs and needs and, and how, how things are done. Um, I think if you, at least, if there's a beginning that, that there's a, a transparency and an openness and a willingness to be accepting of something that is not exactly the ideal, but that works well enough, um, there's a better chance of, of it being successful. And then every once in a while, you just have this, you know, this amazing thing that works so well, but you can't count on that. The main thing is, is it going to be good enough? Everybody going to be satisfied enough? And, um, and then there are certain certain things that I think that should be absolutely not tolerated, like your 
uh, caregiver, the person you're hiring, should not bring friends and family into the home. I mean, this is a job. <laughs> they shouldn't. They, they, they can't. It's hard to because it's in a home setting, but it's not their home, and they're there to do a job. So you have to set certain, at least in my view, certain um, expectations that this this right. is the way it will be. And but then you are very can be very flexible about other things. Mm-hmm. Well, you just mentioned uh, Next Step in Care, yes. which is this wonderful website you've created that um, that I want you to tell us uh, more about because I've often referred people there. But but before we do, I just want one follow-up sure. question, which on the sort of topic of, of hiring people in the home, which is that people often are concerned about the expense that it will cost. And especially if you want somebody who's a good person, competent person, potentially to stay for you know months or years, you you they need to be paid a fair wage. So what what is your advice to people uh, who say, you know, how can I afford it, both for them as individuals, and then what, what do you think we could be doing as a society to address this, that often people struggle to, uh, on their own, pay for, for their care? Well, this is one of the things that I think, um, assuming that it's a family without endless resources, this is something that I think could be the discussion of a family meeting so that if there is a clear need for assistance, what doesn't have to be 24 hours, but for whatever the need is, that that one person would take on the responsibility of probably the person closest, uh, managing, uh, training, and all of that, and that the family as a whole uh, tries to figure out how they can uh, pay for this. This shouldn't, to me, be, well, you know, it's it's your home. You know, mom lives with you, so you should pay for the, the aid if you want to go to work. Well, that's up to you. Um, that It should really be a family discussion. And it, I think a lot of people are very, get very uptight about, well, you know, that the person who is getting someone is getting more than somebody else out of this arrangement uh, it's it's a very tricky situation there are situations in which uh the family caregiver can be paid it's not easy to get and it's only in certain states and have um a medicaid waiver that allows the basically it's called a consumer directed cash and counseling one of those other terms where it's basically the say it's mom, mom hires uh, a daughter to be the caregiver, but daughter can only get paid what an agency might have been paid for the several hours of week, a week of work, and there's no training involved. But those are possibilities. Um, but I, I do think that it, it should be a shared responsibility. And if possible, that, um, you know, could be, would be one way of dealing with it. There's no there's no other resource for this that I know of um, other than savings and people do use their savings or um, do other sorts of things, um, you know, use up vacation time. What all, all of the ways that people try to scrimp and save, but um, it's, it's very troubling and because you do want to pay someone to do it, it, it's costly. <laughs> no right. way, no way, no way, especially as the need gets, gets stronger and, 
you know, you need someone there more often. Uh, and um, it just becomes, it, it's difficult. Yeah, certainly. Do you think it's generally, um, you know, you sort of mentioned that there's often one family member who's closer, who ends up, you know, doing a lot because they're there. Um, and do you think it's generally a good idea for others in the family to somehow pay that person or somehow, you know, um, chip in for that? Because I, I, sometimes I think that's why people want to hire somebody, right. you know, is because otherwise they're just donating all their time. And at least if someone else is hired, then you have a sort of like expense for somebody else, which you can show to all your siblings and, you know, ask them to chip in for. Well, I think it very much depends on the family and whether they are, they are um, the kind of family that can discuss things calmly and peacefully and work things out and sit, come up with a fair, um, fair solution. Um, I don't think it's fair for one person to bear all of the all the costs and all of the stress of doing this and then um, and then have the other siblings um, or one other people in the family, you know, just hanging around for the, their inheritance. But that's a kind of thing that it, 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 it often happens when there's a crisis or it be when everything has gone too far. I would, I always do recommend that people seek, a, if not a paid counselor, then a trusted family friend, um, a clergy person, um, a someone in the community or someone that knows the family well, to have them sit down and with them. And over time, it doesn't have to all be decided at once. Um, try to work out, you know, this, what is the likely trajectory of this? How are we, how is this going to manage? This is a family, it's a family problem, not a particular person's problem. Um, if you do that well in advance or as soon as things start to feel like they're in an inevitable decline, then, um, then I think there's a better chance, but not no guarantees, no guarantees at all. Right. A doctor can can start this conversation, um, and I think doctors in general. I'm sure you're not in this. But they're very reluctant to uh, get into the emotional side of this, um, and it you know it's uh, the medical, it's the pills, it's the treatment. Um, many doctors are they're going through it themselves, but they don't want to you know deal with it with their patient. They don't feel. They don't feel that they know what to do and they don't feel that they can be helpful. But I think that's wrong. They can be. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's time consuming and feels a little messy. Right. And, oh, absolutely. It's um, all of those. And we often, you know, most of us have not had a lot of training in how to do it. And I think that's generally a recipe for people avoiding <laughs> um, something. And uh, so, yes, we should find ways to give clinicians, you know, more time and um, encouragement and training to, to do this, because I do think it's very important work to do and that we're often in a very good position, um, for instance, to help people prioritize what's most helpful or important to do in terms of improving the person's health and well-being. Um, you know, those are important uh, roles that we can, we can play and just not abandoning people in their moment of need and difficulty is really important as well. Well, you were mentioning that often a crisis um, you were mentioning that often a crisis brings things on and often that crisis can be hospitalization 
a, a fall or a sudden uh, illness related to the heart or elsewhere that kind of sets a whole cascade in motion. And, and that that time of coming out of the hospital is often really challenging for families, also medically, a risky time. People are ill and many of them end up being re-hospitalized. And so that makes me think of next step in yes. care. And um, can you tell us a bit about it? Because I think uh, I came across it years ago. I think it's a really wonderful resource. And tell us what, what made you create it and, and what it does. Well, next step in care, and let me give you the URL. It's www.nextstepincare.org. Um, it's a website of the United Hospital Fund. And we started this um, almost you know, in the first few years after starting the whole project. And the theory behind it is that a lot of the uh, difficulties and stress and frustration, and I use myself as the poster child for this, or difficulties not in dealing with the uh, person's condition per se, but in dealing with the healthcare system and navigating the healthcare system. And so we thought that an easy to read set of guides for family caregivers around uh, transitions in care, which are the, the kinds of moves from one place to another, they can also be the kinds of you know steps from one level of care to another, are the points at which the things are most likely to be confusing, but also where there are opportunities to um, make changes. So we started and with a few guides where we uh, talked, I think we think, you know, hospital to home is one of the most common and most challenging of transitions. And we started with a few guides on that, and we still have those guides, although they're updated quite regularly. Um, what do you need to think about in terms of a hospital discharge? Um, what are the medication lists? We have a guide on medication management and a form to fill out for keeping up to date on medications. Um, what is home care? What are the different kinds of home care? I, mean, I had mentioned the uh, guide on dealing with um, um, home care aides. But increasingly, as, as at least in New York and I'm sure other, well, other places, uh, discharges are not directly home, but there's an intermediate step at a skilled nursing facility or another kind of a place that has a rehab unit. And so that's a different kind of discharge. And what does that mean? And what do you need to know about that? And who pays for it? There's always those are always the questions. So our initial few guides um, have expanded to now, I think there's something like 35 different guides. The most recent oh, wow. one um, is a guide to uh, some sorts of technology. Uh, what are all these, what are these sensors? How should I know whether to buy one or not? What about privacy? Um, and uh, that's, you know, wasn't an issue 20 years ago, but it is now. Um, and we also have a parallel set of guides for healthcare providers on understanding um, how best to work with family caregivers. There's one on how to help family care, how to deal with family caregivers when the person has dementia and is in a hospital. And it's a very, very um, uh, challenging situation. So they're, in, they're all free. Um, they're in four languages, English, Spanish, Chinese, and Russian. 
and uh, we add to them as new ones come along. We've just gone through a very large revision of our rehab guides to make them more concise. And it may be interesting to know that um, Bob DeLuna keeps track of our our communications department, keeps track of our, you know, the usage of the website. And invariably, the most frequently downloaded guides are the guides to HIPAA, the privacy regulations, and the guide to hospice and palliative care, um, mm. which says to me that people are not talking to families about the options of hospice and palliative care and people in the in the medical community. So they're going online to find it. And they're finding it. We have a very good guide, but it also should be a part of the conversation that is going on um, with professionals. Um, and HIPAA is just a perennial problem that um, people are really being unfairly and um, basically illegally de- denied access to information about their family members' care because the perception that uh, the misperception that doctors and nurses can't talk to them, um, which is just wrong. Um, so um, we we think that these are are good. They're not the answers to everything. But they're very good introductions to each of these topics, and each one of them is is reviewed um, and uh, edited by a health literacy expert. So they're not at a, any particular grade level, but they are as simple as we can make them. And there's some things that just you know they're complicated, so they're they're hard to explain in in um, fourth grade language. But um, I think that it serves a very important purpose because if you understand what might happen, what's going to happen, who to talk to, what should happen, um, you know, it's knowledge is power. And um, that's, you don't feel as I did. So absolutely, I don't know what they're talking about. You know, what is going on here? So that's the, the rationale. And I think it's, it's been proved to be very successful. Yeah, no, I think they're they're certainly very um, they're very good, and I I think it's there are not so many places online where we where one can find really practical guides that are uh, written clearly and reviewed by experts and are not a front for some other for profit company that's trying to capture your email right. and then market something to you. I mean, that's one of the issues is that often oh, you know, yeah. a lot of... Well, uh, we, we get a lot of inquiries from those folks who want right. to be listed. And we say, oh, no. <laughs> we we're we're not that we're not in that business we we are there for for the people <laughs> right no but they're they're very good and i find myself often recommending them to people whose good. um parents or relatives are in the hospital and you mentioned rehab transitioning to a rehabilitation facility which people sometimes call you know a convalescent facility <laughs> or um, you know, but they're, 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 they're short stay, yes. uh, nursing homes where people go to recover from surgeries or they go if they're not yet well enough to go home. And, um, and you were mentioning that people now are coming home with, uh, quite a lot of high level of medical need, which I think partly reflects this, this push to, to get people out of the hospital sooner, which in a way is, is good in that the hospital is often a stressful, difficult environment. But I think when they end up home so soon after their their joint surgery or you know other procedures, sometimes uh, 
you know, it's more work for families, actually. So I think your guides on helping families assess, you know, they want to send my parent home. Are, you know, are we ready? Do we have what we need? You know, what are the questions we need to ask is, is really, really important because people go home now, um, I think in a way a bit less well right. than in the old days when they could stay longer for various reasons. And that means whoever's there at home has to be more ready to step up. Right. I mean, even, you know, things that people in the medical profession may take for granted, like um, equipment, durable medical equipment, or DME, as we call it, um, that's very big choices within that realm. And how do you make those choices? Who makes them for you? How do you get trained on those pieces of equipment that are different from the time, the one time you got to do it in the hospital? So um, it's a, it's a very stressful experience or can be. And so the more information you have, um, won't make the choices crystal clear, but at least you have the basics on which to seek out more information or, or then make your choice. Right. Well, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm mindful of the, the time. I don't want to keep you too much longer. This has been such a wonderful discussion though. It's hard to not keep going. <laughs> I guess, you know, in the, in the time we have left, you know, at this point you, um, I also want to, I have been meaning to fit this in to tell the audience, but that before you started this work with family caregivers, you mentioned your work with HIV AIDS. And I just want to tell the audience that it was such important work that you were given a MacArthur grant for it. Um, so you really have a wonderful history of doing super important work. Thank you. To, to serve the public. And now you've been doing all this work uh, for family caregivers for, for really at least 20 years and you, you were saying earlier that are there things we shouldn't ask families to do? And we have an aging population and more and more people in this role of helping another person. The estimates are sort of 30 to 50 million people, depending on how you define um, a caregiver. What kind of social changes are you optimistic about us making to, to make this more feasible <laughs> for everybody? Um, because people come to me and say, isn't there help? And I say, well... It's kind of limited right now, right. and I'm wondering what should we be hoping for in the next well, five to ten years. I am not by nature a very optimistic person, honestly. Um, I could say that I think there has been a tremendous increase in the understanding that families are doing these jobs and that it is hard and that they do need help. Now, how people define help um, is very different. Um, I think one thing that could be done and wouldn't be such a big deal is to increase the funding for the National Family Caregiver Support Program, uh, which has been in existence for, I don't know, 12, 15 years and has been very stable funding. In other words, it hasn't gone up 150 million or something like that. And and what is that program? What does it do for people? Provides through states, through the state area agencies on aging, the uh, caregiver support programs of um, referral information, um, support groups, other some there is are some that provide some very modest money to do things like make a ramp in your home or something like that. Um, they're basically the place to go to start looking for 
what's available in your community. They could do a lot more. They could do training on some of these medical nursing tasks. They could do a lot more outreach so that their what even the limited services that they have now could be uh, could be expanded. And this is for caregivers of older adults. Um, that would be that's already in existence. So it's simply a question of increasing its funding and increasing and broadening the the scope of the kinds of services it provides. I think that there are other uh, ways of of pr providing some help through tax credits, which would affect uh, mostly middle class people, but could be of some financial assistance. Of providing social security credits for people who take time off from employment to do um, their caregiving because right now that just takes them off the social security list and they don't get anything for that and that's basically you know a very big piece of of a retirement plan uh, there's right. some so there are some and these I would call modest these are not big deal things to have anything that really supports more services uh, in the community, more services at home, more services that are not, what's the term, that are not dependent on being poverty stricken, that are available to everyone. And not just people on Medicaid. Yes. And states are often very restrictive right. about who can be on Medicaid because they're there trying to keep their own budget exactly. so, under so control. So understanding yeah. that this is not only a service to an individual, this is a service to the community. This is a service to society. And there ought to be some recognition in a very, in very tangible ways, uh, more um, acceptable respite services. Often people don't want to take advantage of respite because they don't want to they don't trust leaving the person with somebody they don't know. So some way of providing respite that is acceptable to everyone. There are a whole bunch of things that could be tried, but we don't seem to have the political will at this point to do that. Um, I, th I think that, you know, everyone talks about what's going to happen in the future. The future is now. We're, we're there. We don't have to, we don't have to look 20 years out. We're, we're there. And, the more information we get about the impact on family caregivers' health of years of caregiving, um, the more we'd say, you know, you're creating a new, a new group of people who need care for themselves. So we're not doing anything in a, in a logical way, but it is a kind of, you know, nobody wants to get near family policy. Nobody wants to talk about spending a lot of money. So... I'm not optimistic, but I do think that there has become at least the beginnings of a, a movement toward some of these activities. Right. Do you see more and more employers providing support for um, family leave or otherwise supporting their employees who are are helping an, an aging relative or uh, or really any relative, but they, I think there are more people of kind of middle age helping right, an older right. person than there are helping a, a child who's chronically ill or a younger person. I think there's there are more employers interested in doing some things, but the kind of employer who is in that category is very is probably 
only a very large employer, um, and many of the caregivers, particularly women, work in very small work for, for employers who are who have very limited, you know, workforce, and where someone being out for a couple of weeks, it really is a difficulty. So. Yes, the big employers are be kind of being pushed into being more responsive to their employees who who need time off or who need any flexible arrangements. But working against that is the the gig economy where everybody's you know working on their own and where there there isn't any kind of safety net for that. So I think we're seeing a lot of different. Um, social changes and 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 economic changes that are not the the upshot is not clear. Um, certainly, the big employers who can afford to do this should do it. Um, it's hard to say to a you know somebody who hires ten people that um, twenty people that you can you can allow to you know you can you can do the same amount of work with fewer people. And one of the um, big employers which I don't think probably has the greatest um, policies around family leave, um, our health care. You know, nurse doesn't show up right. for, for her shift. That's not good. So I'd like to see what, they're, what they could do. They could do more for their employees. So it, it's a big, that's a huge area. And I think it's not one that I've been very much involved in, but I know that there are a number of of companies that are are really trying to do a um, be be in the forefront on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't love the idea of um, you know help for family caregivers being too tied to employment because, as you said, you know that's really within the reach of very large employers, and fewer and fewer people are working long term for those large employers. But I'm hoping that they might at least serve as interesting laboratories, you know, to try things that are helpful that mm-hmm. maybe could then be expanded. Um, to more people. And um, and I think in the, the show notes, I'm going to link not only to um, some of the resources you recommended and Next Step in Care, but last year there was, I read a very interesting article about how Japan ended up addressing this, that, you know, they had historically depended on, on family members and there was just such, um, uh, those family caregivers were under such pressure that they really insisted on a, um, you know, a, a, publicly financed long-term care program that I think still relies mostly on family members, but, you know, everybody I think had to pay into it throughout their, their, their lives. Um, and that it especially created more, more respite and I think more, um, adult day health centers and, you know, more just additional programs that were made available to, to society at large, which is probably what we need rather than it being, you know, another benefit if you work for well, I haven't, I haven't seen that on any politician's um, platform yet, but maybe we'll see. Um, other countries are doing, you know, much more than we are. Um, Germany, UK, Australia, you know, um, Canada. Um, and um, there seems to be more of a social cohesion about that. We don't seem to have that. But meanwhile, the today's family caregivers are struggling along, and we've got to help them while we hope for a better future for for everyone who's going to be coming along doing this job. Right, which is pretty much all of us. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, all of us will probably at some point be helping someone else and then eventually need help from right. 
from uh, others unless we're either extremely lucky or unlucky, depending on how you, you know, choose to see it. Um, well, Carol, thank you so very much for um, sharing these experiences and, and insights and also for everything you've done on behalf of family caregivers. I really do think you've been a pivotal figure in bringing the attention to, to what family caregivers are doing because I certainly have seen your, your name come up quite a lot in, in major medical journals and then I know you do a lot of important other work as well. So it's been great to have you. We'll thank hopefully you. have you again at, at some point and hopefully with better news for all of us. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very on much. new programs Leslie. and support for family caregivers. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed those insights from Carol Levine. Again, she's the director of the Families and Healthcare Project at the United Hospital Fund of New York and helped create the caregiver resources available at nextstepincare.org, and I'll link to that site in the show notes. Also, since in this episode we touched on policy changes and programs that can better support family caregivers, in the notes I'll also be linking to an AARP policy paper about family caregivers. It is called Valuing the Invaluable, as in valuing the immense amount of work that many of you are doing or will be doing, as family caregivers, and it was published in July of 2015. Now, it's written for policy professionals rather than for the general public, so it's not at fourth grade reading level, but I want to make it available and encourage you to read it because especially in the later part of the paper, the authors list some policy advances in supporting family caregivers, and they also make recommendations for additional policies that can support family caregivers. So if you can spare a little time to take a look, I hope you will, because ultimately, for things to get better and easier for family caregivers, we need the public to support and maybe even demand policy changes. So this report is one way to learn more about uh, the situation for family caregivers and what we as a society could be doing to support them. Otherwise, for links related to this episode's discussion, be sure to visit the show notes page for this episode. You can find those at betterhealthwhileaging.net slash podcast, and that will take you to a list of recent episodes, including this one. And of course, if you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, please post your question in the comments section under the show notes for the episode. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, you can leave a rating and review. This makes it much easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregiving to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.